That's about enough relationship for one day. All right. Uh, I, I, my voice is going to be cracking here like a, a junior hire for a little while. I'm, I've got what most of you have had or are getting, which is we've been all been sharing, so please forgive the frog in my throat. Um, we are in the midst of a series called His Story. And the whole point of this has been to step back from the, the small stories, the little narratives that we see, the vignettes throughout Scripture, and step back and kind of get a grand picture of the, the meta-narrative or the grand story that runs from Genesis to Revelation. It's a story in which God is the central character, and he is, it's a story of a father in pursuit of his prodigal children. That is the heartbeat of what we've been looking at. And as we've looked at over the last couple of months so far, God spoke everything into existence. And the, the last thing he created was mankind, created in his image in order to be his representatives on earth. And the heartbeat behind that was God desiring for us to be his representatives, and he desired to have relationship with us as well. And so what he did is he gave us free will, because the only genuine way that we can have real relationship is through free will. And so he entrusted us with free will. We, he gave us the ability to choose to obey or to disobey, to trust him and follow him or not to trust him and to do our own thing. And sadly, our, our, our oldest ancestors, Adam and Eve, chose to distrust him and do their own thing. And that began this downward spiral into immorality. Um, it got so bad, in fact, that at one point God decided, you know what, all of mankind is never going to fully represent me. So instead, I'm going to need to carve out, create a kingdom of people that will represent me, a nation for myself, and they will be my representatives to the rest of mankind. And that nation was known as Israel. And he began with one man, and we followed the journey of one guy named Abram, who became Abraham, and we followed it all the way until... His people, God's people, were enslaved in Egypt for some 430 years. And then we watched as God came in and brought his people out of slavery powerfully, demonstrating his power and authority over the so-called gods of the Egyptians. And we watched as God led his people into the wilderness and then decimated the most powerful army in the world at that time, that of the Egyptians, without his people needing to lift a finger to do anything. God fought for them. And God decided, you're going to be my people. You're going to be my representatives. He in, his intention was that the, the people of Israel would be a holy nation set apart from all the others to be a kingdom of priests representing the heart of God to the rest of the world. But the reality is all they'd known for 430 years was slavery. It's all they understood. And so God needed to help them understand what it actually looked like to be the people of God. And so he brought them to the foot of a mountain, Mount Sinai. And there he covenanted with them and he gave them the law. And the law's intention was never to be a ladder that we can climb to somehow attain righteousness or right standing in God's presence. The law was given instead to help a people who had only ever known slavery to understand what it looks like to be his people. And so the first Four laws. The Ten Commandments are just part of the law, but it's the ones that we know the best. And the first four commandments are all about our vertical relationship with God. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't create idols of anything in the world and bow down and worship them because I'm a jealous God. I will not share 
my love with another. Don't take my name flippantly. Don't misuse it. Don't treat the fact that you are called by my name lightly. You're my representatives. And then finally, honor the Sabbath day. On that day, set it aside to reconnect with me and to rest. So the first four are all about our vertical relationship with God, and then the last six of those commandments are about the horizontal relationship with one another. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. And if you follow these things, if you begin to embrace them, then you will be my representatives. You will be a kingdom of priests representing me to the rest of the world. But here's the thing. God knew, even at that point, that his people would never be able to perfectly keep the law. He knew that they would never be able to live as holy people, holy as he was holy. And holy is just a word that means set apart, different, other. He knew that they couldn't do it. And so even then, he instituted this sacrificial system, which we looked at last week. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, if you weren't here, you didn't listen to it online, we have a few CDs in the back, and I'd encourage you to grab it. Because we looked at the way in which the sacrificial system was set up to help impure, broken, fallible people become clean, become atone for our sins so that we could enter into relationship with our God. That's the heartbeat. And that's really kind of the story thus far. And we're going to pick up that story in Exodus chapter 32. So if you have a Bible, we're going to begin in Exodus 32. I encourage you to turn there. We're going to be reading some swaths of scripture today, and I'd I'd love for you to be able to follow along. So Exodus is the second book in the Bible, chapter 32. And as we pick up this story, at this point, the Israelites are camped at the base of Mount Sinai. God has just covenanted with his people. And probably the best modern equivalent I can give you is God has just married Israel. God is the groom. Israel is his bride. And he has just said, I do, I take you to be mine. And they've just exchanged their vows. God's saying, I will be your God, I will guide you, I will protect you, I will provide for you. And, and what I ask for in return, your vows, are that you would follow the law, that you would seek to represent me. And Moses has just kind of finally formalized this. God has given him the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments that he's carrying down the mountain with him. They're stone because they didn't have a whole lot of paper with them. You know, they're, they're carrying them down the mountain. They didn't have their cell phone and they could just like pull up the email. So he's carrying these things down and he hears all of this noise in the camp. And he can't tell if whether it's a, 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 a war has broken out or whether there's this massive party going on. He hears a bunch of noise and they're going, what is that? You see, what had happened is Moses had been up the mountain for 40 days, which is quite a bit of time, almost a month and a half. And during that time, the people of Israel are going, okay, well, we know we've got a holy God that will literally just, he can destroy an army. He could do anything to a single person. And and Moses has been gone for a while. Man, maybe he's not coming back. And if he's not coming back, he was our sole kind of intermediary between us and God. Maybe we've lost our connection to our God and where does that leave us? We're in the wilderness now, and we've been so dependent on Yahweh to lead us and guide us and protect us. And so they come to Aaron, who's Moses' brother, and they say, Aaron, you need to do something. We need a God or gods to be able to go ahead of us and guide us. So 
create an idol for us because those idols, that gives us a connection to a God, whether it's to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or to any other God. We need something because otherwise we're on our own. And so Aaron created this golden idol of a calf, fashioned it to be an idol that the people could bow down. He said, okay, this is the gods that have led you out of Egypt. Bow down to him. And Moses comes walking into the camp as the people are prostrating themselves to this calf. As they're breaking the first two commandments of you shall not have any other gods before me and you shall not make an idol in the form of anything on the earth. And they're breaking them right at the very outset. And so we read in Exodus chapter 32 verse 19. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. He's just so disgusted at the people's inability even to keep the law. He's just done. They've already broken the covenant. Great. And he took the calf that the people had made and he burned it in the fire. Then he ground it into powder, scattering it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. And he said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? What on earth were you thinking? And Aaron replied, don't be angry, my Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. And so I told them, all right, well, whatever gold jewelry you have, take it off. And they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out, they, out came this calf. I, I don't know. For those of you who have had teenagers, maybe you understand a little bit about what is going on in Moses' mind, right? You have just come back from vacation You've entrusted your house to your kids and you walk into this radically destructive party going on in your house and you're just holding your anger in check. What on earth? And you go looking for your kids and you find them. You go, what have you done? We have no idea what happened. We just invited one friend over and they all showed up. And so Moses starts cleaning house. He starts walking through the camp. He destroys the calf. He just, he tries to put things right, but he's kind of like the mother in this story. She's come home first. He he goes, wait until your father finds out, right? Because in the back of his mind, he's angry, but imagine Yahweh. Imagine God. What what is God going to say when he finds out? And that's just percolating at the back of Moses' mind. So as we keep reading, we're going to jump down to verse 31. Rather than Moses waiting for God to react, Moses just decides, I need to take the bull by the horns. I need to go talk to him. I need to go intervene because I do not want him to just completely reject us as a people. So verse 31 of chapter 32. Moses went back to the Lord and he said, Oh, what great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if you won't, then then blot me out of the book that you've written. Okay, I'll take the punishment. Just, I'm sorry. And the Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place that I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. It doesn't take very long. We read the very next verse that the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf that Aaron had made. So a plague ravages the camp. We don't know if people passed away or if it was just simply something that that affected them. But 
God did, there were repercussions to their actions. You see, the thing is, God is a God of grace, but he's also a God of justice. And a just God cannot simply turn a blind eye to our sin. And so there are repercussions. But then we read now in chapter 33, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. And I love that. You and the people you brought out of Egypt. It's kind of like, okay, your kids? Take them. Okay? Aren't these your people? Didn't you? Take the people you brought out of Egypt and just go. The Lord said, Leave this place, you and the people you brought out of Egypt, and go up to the land that I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give this to your descendants. So go into the promised land that I promised to give you. Verse 2, I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So, okay, so the curse, or the, the, the plague that hit, that we're good, okay? We're, we're, we're okay now? You're going to give us the land still, so we're all right, God? Almost. But then we read, we read verse 3 here. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. You go, you and the people, go into the land that I promised, but I am not going to go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I just might destroy you on the way. (laughs) So go. It's going to be better for you that I don't go with you. Verse 4, Then the people heard these distressing words. They began to mourn. What is so distressing about this? God's giving them the land. Why is it so distressing that he is choosing not to go up with them? Well, let's think about this for a moment. God, up to this point, has been the central pillar of Israel's identity. They are the people of God, called by Him. Without Him, they're just a bunch of runaway slaves. With Him, they're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We think about all they've experienced. Remember, all they've known up to this point is slavery, and then all of a sudden, Moses shows up and says, God, Yahweh, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has not forgotten you while we've been enslaved. He's heard your prayers and he's responded. And then they've watched as God forcibly brought them out of slavery, breaking the back of the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt. Watched as he decimated an army. And do you remember where God was as the people left Egypt? Where was he? He was in the front as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night leading the people. So we, they have known as a nation beyond their slavery, they've only known God leading, guiding, providing, protecting. When the Egyptian army was descending on them, the, the spirit of God and this pillar of cloud came and rested in between them and divided the, the army from the people until they could walk through on dry ground through the Red Sea. God has also guided and led Moses in his leadership. We read in verse 7 of chapter 33. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. And anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance of the tent, watching Moses until he entered the tent. And as Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. And so throughout this entire wilderness wandering toward the promised land, God has been 
active in their midst, present. You've had this pillar of cloud and fire that has been a constant reminder of God's presence. And now all of a sudden, he's saying, I'm not going to go with you. You're on your own. I'll send an angel, but I'm not heading with you. And can you, you can then begin to understand why Moses is so distraught over this. Our identity as a nation is wrapped around you, God. You can't simply not go with us. So we read in verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me to lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name and you've found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, then teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor. And remember that this nation is your people. Don't forget us. And so the Lord replied, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. And that you in Hebrew is singular. He's speaking to Moses only. I'm with you, Moses. I love you. You've been faithful to me. And I will be faithful to you. Verse 15, Then Moses said to him, If your presence doesn't go with us, plural, then don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And Moses begins to plead that God would go with them. And so God relents and he says, okay, okay, I'll go with you. I'll go with the people. I will guide you into this land that I promised to give you. But I am not content to simply stay on the outskirts of the camp and having a tent that you have to go visit me outside of the camp. If I truly am the center of Israel's identity, then I want to be at the center. And so he begins to command Moses and how to create a new tent of meeting, what we will come to know as the tabernacle. And, he, and this is a big deal because fully of the 40 chapters of Exodus, fully one-third of them are focused around the tabernacle. This is a big deal. We have a picture of it if you can throw the first one up there. The tabernacle, you see it right there in the middle, the tabernacle was intended to be a portable sanctuary to God, God's throne room in the midst of his people. And you'll see that this is the way it was intended to be kind of placed, where you have the tabernacle in the middle and then all of the tribes of Israel would camp around it. He literally was in the epicenter of his people. As a constant reminder of his presence, this is where people would go to offer sacrifices. This is where people would go to interact and to seek his help. Let's go to the next slide, please. This is a modern recreation of the tabernacle, just to give us an idea of what it would look like. You see that there's a big linen curtain that goes all around the outside. It wouldn't keep an army out, but again, this is God's house. People are going to think twice before they try to attack it. You've also also got all of the Israelites camped around it. You have this big altar at the very front. The first thing you would come to as you came in is this big fire pit. And this is where the sacrifices that we looked at last week would go. When you're making sacrifices for atonement in order to bring unclean people into a holy place where God resides, you need to prepare yourself and atone for your sins. And so that altar right there, thing on the left, it was used for the, the sacrificial offerings to be burnt. You go a little bit further and there was a big basin of water and this is what the priests, the Levites, which was a tribe of Israel that ministered to God as priests in the temple, 
the Levites would go and they would wash their hands in that basin of water. They would wash their feet to ceremonially cleanse themselves before they entered into the holy place, into God's tabernacle. Let's go to the next slide. This is inside. Now we're looking at it from the other side. So we would enter from this way, moving towards the back. A couple of things I want you to notice, and it may be very difficult to see, but there's a curtain about two-thirds of the way down the tabernacle. And this curtain basically divided it into two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place. As the priests would enter, they would enter into the holy place, and there were only a couple of items of furniture there. On the right side, you would have a table that had 12 loaves of unleavened bread. It was called the show bread. And that bread was intended to remind the people of the 12 tribes of Israel and God's provision for them. And every week, this bread, along with some wine and some oil, would be replaced. On the other side was a big menorah with seven wicks on it. And this was to remind, it was supposed to be lit just as dusk was hitting and was to be lit all throughout the night, bringing light to the tabernacle and reminding the people of God's glory. Glory is often symbolized by light. When you see God, he's often described as being resplendent with lots and lots of light. And they've seen the fire of God in their presence. When Moses comes out of God's presence, his face is glowing. So the light of God's glory is on it. And that menorah was intended to remind them of that. And then the last thing they would come to right before you get to the curtain was an altar of incense. And incense throughout scripture, lots of places, symbolizes the prayers of God's people rising up to him. So those are the three pieces of furniture that God had them create for the tabernacle. And then you come to the the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And only one person ever walked through that curtain, the high priest. And he only went once a year on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the day when he would go and atone for the sins of all of Israel before God. Because beyond that curtain stood the Ark of the Covenant, the box that contained the the tablets of the law, along with a jar of manna, reminding the people of God's provision, along with a staff that we're not going to look at. But there are just a couple of things in that. But the Ark of the Covenant itself was considered God's throne on earth. And so you do not go lightly into that place. This, God spent a tremendous amount of time detailing what he wanted it to look like. And then, turn with me to chapter 40. Moses spends a whole bunch of time getting that ready. And at the very end of Exodus, the last couple of verses, <coughs> we read about Moses finishing the work. The tabernacle's complete. God's portable sanctuary is ready to be set up. And so he begins to set it up. We'll read starting in verse 33 of Exodus chapter 40. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar, and he put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. And then we read about how God responds. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's as if God has just been waiting for it to be finished. And as soon as it's done, he just goes, here I go, I'm moving in. Into the midst of my people. I wanted to be in the center of their lives and for them to recognize just how central I am. And so he moves in. Moses couldn't even enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of Yahweh filled the temple. 
And in all of the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted up from the tabernacle, they would set out and they would follow it. But if the cloud did not lift, then they didn't set out until the day that it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and the fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during their travels as a constant, tangible reminder that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was with them. At the center of their camp, he was the center of their identity. He was the center of their lives. He was the direction. He was the provision. He was the provider. He was everything to them. Without him, they were nothing. And God ultimately leads the people into the promised land. He gives them victory over the inhabitants there. He brings them into the land that he promised to give them. And when they finally settle down, they make Jerusalem the capital of Israel And they build a temple, which is simply a more permanent tabernacle. The tabernacle that we looked at, the temple was just a much larger scale of what they had there. And it served the same purpose, same curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. Only the high priest could go into there, all that kind of stuff. What I want you to get from all of this is that God was intentional about being amongst his people. He desired it. And I want you to keep that image of the tabernacle in mind now as we turn to the New Testament book of John. So go ahead and go to John chapter 1. So you've got the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So John is the fourth one of them. Matthew, Mark, and Luke bear striking resemblance. John kind of stands alone and that it takes a different approach to describing this Jesus, this Messiah that the people had been waiting for. And in the very first verse of John, many of us are very familiar with it. We read, in the beginning was the word, and that word is, is a translation of logos. And it's just a, a way of saying, in the beginning was this, this creative power that brought order to the chaos. Remember when God spoke things into existence, it was this logos that was participating. God spoke the words and it happened. And it was the word that made things happen. So in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now, I don't want to focus on this. Jump down to verse 14. I just want to establish that this logos or this, this word was the creative energy behind the universe. Verse 14. The word became flesh, took on flesh, became human, and made his dwelling among us. Now, we may skip right over this. We may not recognize it, but that word that we have translated into made his dwelling in the Greek is the same word that they would use to translate the Hebrew word tabernacle. So another way that we could translate this is the word became flesh and he tabernacled amongst us. Jesus Christ was the physical embodiment of the tabernacle, God in human flesh residing amidst his people. He was a culmination of that whole thing, of God wanting to be with his people, he entered even into more intimate, interactive relationship with his people through Jesus Christ. Jesus will go so far as to suggest that 
he was the true temple. When the Pharisees would question him, show us a sign that you really are the Messiah, he'd say, listen, you want a sign? Tear this temple down and in three days I'll raise it back up. They're thinking he's talking about the brick and mortar temple. He's talking about himself, the true temple of God, where the Holy Spirit, where God himself resides. God desired to be in the midst of his people. And this is, this is exciting stuff, but then we have to think, well, that was 2,000 years ago. And he walked with his people for a while, some 33, 34 years, and then he was crucified. And he died. And yes, he resurrected from the dead three days later. We wouldn't be sitting here if he didn't. On that first Easter morning, he, wrote, he was risen from the dead. He spent 40 more days interacting with his disciples, preparing them. And then he rose back up into heaven to sit at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding on our behalf, preparing a place for us that call him Lord and follow him. And we're like, okay, that's great. But we don't have a tabernacle to go visit. You, I've even been to Jerusalem where the temple was. It's not there anymore. I asked them, hey, where's the temple mountain? They go, there's no temple in Jerusalem. It's a mosque now. <laughs> and you begin to go, okay, well, what about God with us? I'm glad God was with them. What about God with us? Well, Jesus anticipated this question. Go, go with me to John chapter 14 now. Jesus knew that those who were left behind as he was going back into heaven would be like, well, what about God's presence with his people? And on the night that he was arrested and ultimately would lead to his crucifixion, he addressed that question. He says in John chapter 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, one like me, a comforter, a counselor to help you and be with you forever. This is verse 17. He is the spirit of truth. We know him as the Holy Spirit. I will send the Holy Spirit after me. He will come alongside of you. He will be God with you. The world cannot accept him because he neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. So now we've gone from God with us to God within us. And when we think about it, the tabernacle was simply the receptacle for God to reside in the midst of his people. We are now the tabernacle. We are now the temple of the living God. You don't have to take my word for it either. Go with me to 1 Corinthians. Last place we're going. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Go write several, several books. Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. If you hit 2 Corinthians, go left. <clears throat> All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. This is Paul talking to the church in Corinth, the gathering of believers there, and he says this, Do you not know... That you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Now in this instance, he's not talking about individuals. He's talking about a corporate body of believers. We're, not either, we're also not talking about a building. We'll often talk about the fact that Lighthouse Church is not this building. We are the community of believers. We are the church. 
And he's saying you guys together are the temple that have been built together to hold and be a receptacle of the Spirit of God in the midst of Costa Mesa. And if anybody tears this down, if anybody attempts to tear it apart, then God's judgment is going to be pretty heavy on them because this is the temple of God. We are God's temple. But he goes even further a couple chapters later. Jump over to chapter 6. Last couple of verses we're going to read this morning. Because he goes from saying corporately we are the temple to even more intimately to each and every one of us who calls Jesus Christ Savior and Lord. He says in verse 19 of chapter 6, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We are not simply a corporate temple, but individually. If we have said yes to Jesus Christ, accepted him not merely as our Savior, but as our Lord, then we become a temple of the Holy Spirit. We become a temple of God. It's not just God with us, but God within us. And all of this, I geek out on this stuff. I get excited about it. It's like, I can't wait to tell you guys about this. But at the end of the day, it's kind of like, okay, cool. So God resides with us. So what? What does that actually mean in our lives? And this morning, as I, as I kind of wrap this up, I, I want to kind of explore the ramifications of recognizing that God is literally within us. And it plays out in a whole bunch of different ways. I just want to look at two. The first way is the way that we approach God. Do you remember on the day that Jesus Christ was crucified? The very last words from his lip is, it's finished, telestai, paid in full. And then he breathed his last breath. And then what happened next? There was an earthquake. And the veil in the temple that separated the people from the holy of holies was torn from top to bottom. <laughs> the priests went and sewed it back up. But the symbolism was still there. God is saying it's open house. My people who are called by my name, who follow me and place their trust in my son, Jesus Christ, can come just as they are into relationship with me, which is good news for me because I recognize my brokenness. I recognize that I don't have it together. And as much as I want to honor him and, and keep all of the laws, man, I break them all the time. If it's a ladder of righteousness, then I'm on the bottom rung. I think I've got a lot of company with me. And there are times when it feels like I just kind of want to hide from God, right? I know my brokenness. I, I, I even walking into church right now. God, are you going to strike me? And the reality is that God knows that. And he's saying, come as you are. You don't have to, to pretty yourself up. You don't have to spend time kind of fixing yourself up to come into my presence. You can come just as you are with your hopes and your dreams, your fears, your failures, your questions, your doubt. Bring it all to me. I'm a big enough God to be able to handle all of it. And there's some of you who are going, well, yeah, but he's a big God. He's busy. You know, I don't want to disturb him. <laughs> I think of my two-year-old, Grayson. 
Thankfully, he's a cuddle bug because I didn't get that girl, but he at least likes to cuddle. And I'll tell you, I, I, I don't care what I'm doing. When that little boy crawls up to, or walks up to me and tries to like, crawl up on my lap, I stop whatever I'm doing, put it down, and just hold him. And he just likes to melt in me, and it brings me so much joy. And I am a finite, broken human being who's very selfish with my time. Imagine God. We are his kids. He strongly desires relationship with us. We can come just as we are and crawl up in his lap. Sometimes it's, it's hard to get out of bed in the morning. My bed's comfortable and, you know, kids get up really early, so beating them up so I can actually spend some time beating them getting out of bed, I mean. Um, <laughs> clarification so CPS doesn't come to my house today. Um, so beating them out of bed to spend some time with God can get difficult at times. And yet, when I think about the fact that my Father in Heaven went to such efforts to be able to spend time with me, and maybe cracking this doesn't seem quite so dry and dusty because God wants to communicate with me. God wants relationship with me. And the fact is, we don't have to go through a priest or an intermediary. You don't need to come to a pastor to come to God and interact. Or to have you tell you what this means. You don't need to. You don't need to go to a building. To connect with God. He's with you. And he's always with you. (laughs) One of somebody I really respect once said, you know, prayer. Isn't a time to be good. It's a time to be honest. And we can come just as we are, broken. And God loves us. And he's already paid the penalty so that we can be in relationship with him. So come as you are. That's the first thought of God with us. The second one has to do with our lifestyle. Because when we begin to... There are some of you who are trying really, really hard to get your friends, your neighbors, your family to come to church, right? You're like... You know, we're having a breakfast next week, or a lunch after church next week is really good food. It doesn't matter about the teaching. The food's great. Come with me. You know, anything to get people into the seats here as if somehow God's spirit resides here. And the reminder of God with us is that you are a portable sanctuary of God. You bring God with you everywhere you go. And your life the choices you make, the values that you exhibit, the way you interact with your, your friends, your family, that speaks far louder and more compellingly than anything I could say or that Lee could say from up here. One, people have said, you know, our lives may be the only scripture that some people will read. So what are they reading about our God? What do they learn about our God through the ways that our lives speak? It's sobering, isn't it? To think that we really are God's representatives to this world. That we really are his ambassadors of hope and reconciliation. That we are light bearers in the midst of a darkened world that desperately needs help. But we are. It's sobering and it's exciting that we get to play. That God allows us to be used. On the flip side... When we begin to think about the fact that we are the temple, think about this for a second. There's a a dark chapter in Israel's history. We're not going to really look at it. 
But at one point, the people began to use the temple as a common area. They treated it no differently than any other place. The same amount of immorality and debauchery, the same amount of selfishness and self-centered greed began to well up in that place to the point where God got so disgusted that they were treating it as any other place that he said, I'm out. And God's spirit left the temple. We might shake our heads at the Israelites going, man, what short-sighted people. And then we have to remember, wait a minute, we're the temple. How do I treat my body? What kind of things do I allow into it, whether it's media or food or other substances? In what ways have I treated it as common? In what ways have, for those of you who are at the, the Chuck Craft training, on, we, one of the things that he pointed out that really struck home for me was the power of words. Our words have the power of life and death in them. We have the ability to bless and to curse. And how many of us have cursed God's temple? Saying things like, I hate my body. I hate the way I look. We've spoken curses over ourselves or over other people. Or maybe we've just completely disregarded caring for it altogether. And we're reaping the consequences of that. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So honor God with your body. The point this morning is simple. God, the creator and sustainer of everything, has created us in his image. And he has told us, I desire relationship with you. I want to enter into your life. I'm not satisfied to just kind of glean the edges. I'm not satisfied just kind of waiting on the periphery for when you have a problem and you just, you need a little bit of wisdom. I want to be every part of it. Do you realize that in the Hebrew language, there is no word for spiritual? No word for it. The reason is, Because there is no distinction between sacred and secular. No distinction between what is spiritual and unspiritual. Everything's spiritual. God wants to be part of everything, not just Sunday morning for an hour and a half. Not just Tuesday or Wednesday night when you're at your Bible study. Everything. When you're at work. When you're in the car by yourself. When you're sitting at home on the couch trying to figure out what to watch on Netflix. When you're at the gym. God desires to be at the very center of our lives and part of all of it. And the invitation this morning, it's it's sobering but exciting, is that we get to participate with God. We get to be a part of his process of redeeming the world. We get to be an extension of his hands. We get to be light bearers. We call ourselves lighthouse. Literally, each and every one of us are light bearers as we go out into our communities representing him. And that is both a responsibility and a hugely exciting opportunity. And so, yeah, that's enough. I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come forward. And, and I've got one more thought, but I'm going to hold off until after um, our, our worship time. So there are some of you who, who might be tempted to kind of take off through the back door. 
hold on a second, because there's one more thing I want to tell you about that I, I think I'm most excited about of what I get to share today. Um, but here's what we're going to do right now. We are going to worship God together. And you may respond in a couple of different ways. Maybe some of you want to sing these words, and they're going to be meaningful. They're going to flow out of this conversation we've had. That's great. That is one way we worship. Another way we worship is through our our tithes and our offerings, a declaration that, God, I trust you more than I trust my stuff. Everything I have is a gift from you. And so I give back as a declaration that my faith is in you. That's another way we worship. Some of you may simply want to sit here for a little bit, recognizing that you sit in God's presence. He's with you. And maybe you just want to have a conversation with him. Maybe Maybe you realize that you have spoken curses over yourself. You want to repent of those and just say, God, I, 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 in the name of Jesus Christ, I, I break those agreements that I have made. I reverse those curses. And I pray, Father, that you would return blessing instead of curses upon myself or upon others. Or God, maybe it's the prayer of David at the end of Psalm 139. God, search me and know me. Know if there's any errant way in me and lead me in your way everlasting. However it is, however you feel led to respond right now is fine. But let's just take some time to sit before our God and worship him. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for the reminder that you are not some distant God who just wound up the world and then stepped back and watched it spin out of control, that you are intimately and imminently involved in our lives. You say that you know the number of hairs on our head. You know us better than we know ourselves. And the truly good news is that you love us in spite of that. That like like my two-year-old, it brings you joy when we just climb up on your lap and say, God, I need to be with you. I know I don't have it all together. I just want to be with you. Would you meet with us here? Jesus, in your name, amen. We're going to have the ushers come forward and take offering. And you know, tell you what, you can take a seat for just a second because I want just like three more minutes of your time. I want to explain something that I'm really excited about. Ushers, you can go ahead and start passing those. If you have connection cards, if this is your first time here, just put the connection card in there. We would love to know that you're here and we don't want any of your, your money, okay? Just put the connection card in. But this is a way that our tithes and our offerings are a way of declaring, God, my trust is in you. So they're going to be passing that. But while they do, I want to tell you something that we're going to be doing this week. You know, last year, for those of you who, who had the opportunity to experience it, we did something called the 21 Days of Consecration. And we didn't quite, it was an experiment that ended up having radical positive repercussions in our church as we spent three solid weeks, Monday through Friday, sitting in God's presence over in the Faith Cafe. We just sat there for an hour and a half silently as we allowed him to search us and to know us. And it really transformed many of us who uh, participated in that. And so we decided this year we wanted to make sure that we carved out space, but rather than do a three-week kind of drink-from-the-fire-hose experience, we wanted to break it up a little bit more into three individual weeks, which we're calling a week of prayer and consecration. And as we were looking at the calendar, we just, I just kind of closed my eyes and picked weeks where there was nothing else going on, and it, it happened to fall, the first one, on this week. Which, you know, at first I'm going, okay, well... All right, but then as we began to pray about what could this week look like, God gave us a vision for something that I'm really excited about. And that is over the course of this week, Monday through Friday, we are going to recreate the tabernacle across the street. We're going to start entering the gate here and we are going to walk 
through a representation of the tabernacle. And there will be seven stations where we can sit in different prayer postures connecting with God. It'll be a time of examination. It'll be a time of celebration. It'll be a time of confession. And it will ultimately end in the Holy of Holies, where we will sit once again in God's presence. Now, this is different from what we've done in the past in that it's not going to just be an hour and a half of carved out space where we're all sitting together. It's more of an experience that you move at your pace. Some of you are going to breeze through it in 45 minutes. Some of you may want to take three hours to do it. And so in order to kind of create enough space for this to happen, we're going to open up the experience starting at 6 p.m. every night, and it'll close at 9. You come when you want. You leave when you feel led. You spend as much time on each of those stations as you like. It's totally up to you. The excitement here is I really feel like this is going to be a time of carving out space to just be with God and connect with him. And it flows so beautifully out of what we've been able to talk about this morning. I'm really excited. I would ask you strongly to participate. I would encourage you strongly to participate more than one night. I imagine that going through it two and three times, you're going to have different areas that God wants to emphasize. For those of you in small groups, this is what we're doing this week in small groups. 